Hello, and welcome to Not Ready for Rhyme Time. I'm your host, Taylor Woodland, and today is episode 16. Woo! I didn't even know what podcasting was four months ago. As usual, this is an explicit channel. Parents, please vet it before allowing itty-bitty ones to listen, unless you want to expose them to cursing, sex, mutilation. Just don't do it. Feel free to listen yourselves, though. I am pre-recording this for you all because I won't be here next week. I'll be in Hawaii. Yay, Hawaii! I'm excited. Gonna get lots of writing done work on my new novel. Yeah. But enough of my rambles, let's get right into some poetry. Our first poem is called Silver Spoon by Kevin McAllion. It is a micropoem. Silver Spoon. Born with a silver spoon in his mouth, but it's been rusted by the heroin flame. Just another junkie now. That was Silver Spoon by Kevin McAllian. Thank you, Kevin. Our next poem is called Guitar Man by Jonathan Best. Guitar Man. As I walked the concrete path of human presence aftermath, a sound pulled me from reverie and teased my ears a peak. Midst chattered voices crowded through, a lonesome bird, a dog or two, there came a strum of instrument that slowed my walk to sneak. While holding breath, I stepped anew upon this ground where nothing grew. Yet no one else had faltered, maybe only I had heard. I closed my eyes and followed sound, now resonating all around, which led me to a man who strummed without singing a word. Belongings gathered in a pile, it looked like he'd been there a while, and planned to stay a while more, where blankets covered street. Yet still he plucked acoustic string, so hopeful on what it might bring. And all the while a sign requested, coins so he could eat. His chords reflected in me true, as from his strumming sadness flew, for in his sound I heard the weeping sky and wilting earth. I asked of that man quietly, how is it that so clear you see? And in response his clouded eyes said he'd been blind since birth. That was Guitar Man by Jonathan Best. You can follow him on Twitter at jbestbooks. You can also check out his website where he writes more poems, jbestbooks.com. Thank you, Jonathan. Our next poem is called The Birth of War by Peter Gwynn. The Birth of War The up bringing of the Italian Renaissance was but a war taking place through the oils of the Mona Lisa's eyes. The art that dwelled within the beauties of the paintings were immaculate to the eye, as they didn't tell anything but truths and no lies. But not too long did those eyes wander into the abyss of the soul, drenched in acid and torn and worn. 
So did the body of the innocents get slain by the first weapons of war, and so the fight against good and evil was born. The sadness and the great depression of the weak and poor fought to protect the beholders of the Renaissance, giving nothing but mourn. The law was that no man shall kill or steal, especially those that do so for sport. But the code of the scriptures was adjourn. Balance and movement within the arts were but a tree dancing in the rain, as the Mona Lisa's eyes shifted from left to right, giving nothing but cries. The connection between the painter and the painting were nothing but ties hanging from a noose as the depression was becoming more apparent, and the imagination ran rampant with guise. So the wretched had defeated the innocents, torturing and maiming them until there was nothing but sighs. Horns came from the head of the devil himself, but the devil was born to play the instruments of war, and the forked tongue was cursed with demeaning allies. The guilty killed for the entertainment of the Renaissance, as the Middle Ages were evil, and the instruments were played like a horn. An oath spoke aloud within the depths of hell, and so brought forth the demons from the sky, crying out for the pain to arise. There was a thorn. The men and women would fight for freedom as the children lay bare naked. They were scorn. A thorn that was pricking the guilty of sin, but not a thief or murderer would get away with committing these acts of terror, as the punishments would come to arise. Too many had perished in the War of the Renaissance, but not a single man or woman killed or stole again, as that was the only way to go unpunished by the vice. That was The Birth of War by Peter Gwynn. Thank you, Peter. That ends our poetry section for this podcast. We will now be moving on into our short stories. Our first short story, I am warning you now, is really violent and really sexually violent. So if you're not comfortable with that, skip the story. You can see where it ends in the timestamp. Our first short story is called Worse Than Death by Alan Welker. Worse Than Death. Jessica Harper, Aaron Archer's lovely young date for the evening, moans and whimpers through shattered teeth in utter darkness. Both of her eyes, now released from their sockets, lay strewn in the tall grass about ten feet away, sightless, useless. And where the twin windows to her soul used to dwell, only wretched pits remained, not unlike the hollow her body now occupies. It was Jessica's instinct to fill around the space where she lay to perhaps gain a better understanding, at least some clue pertaining to her current predicament, but each of her ten digits were no longer able to grasp. Palms would remain forever open, arms disassociated with the body, all of which now occupied a place in the field where a hole became several pieces. Jessica would have kicked and swung her legs wildly in an attempt to protect herself and deter further action from Aaron, but that, too, was no longer an option. 
In much the same fashion, each of her toes were clipped free. Both feet were separated at the ankle. A pair of legs were carefully sheared off with precision just below the pelvic bone. Near the scene, parked next to an overgrown dirt road, sits a dented, disheveled Chevy Silverado. In various spots around the body and hood, the frost-white paint gives way to bare patches of metal. Both of the rear wheel wells host a distinct arc of rust. Bald and grayed, the tires are cracked with age. The raw, scratched bed, which hosts an oversized rebel flag on a wooden pole, also plays host to bloodied pair of pruning shears and a shovel still smudged with clay and rich black soil. In the socket, just above the rear bumper, a bright orange extension cord is plugged in and runs the length to the circular saw now in Aaron's hands. Agonizing over her current plight, Jessica continues to moan and writhe as the diamond-tipped blade begins to whirl. Come on now, little sister, why you fussin'? Been right generous with you. Cauterized your wounds and everything, Aaron mocked, motioning over to the wielding torch laying just feet away. Or don't you have anything to say for yourself? He continued as the heel of his boot closed on her severed tongue. Just hours earlier, Jessica was in her dorm room, preparing for the evening. As usual, her roommate, Kristen, Christy Collins, was providing unsolicited advice. Never know about those dating sites. I mean, what if this guy turns out to be a psycho or something, Chrissy continued. He's not a psycho, Jessica chuckled, running a brush through her deep raven locks. How do you know? Because we've been talking for over a month now, and while he's kind of a good old boy, he's also really cute and knows how to talk to a lady, Jessica explained. Well, if you won't listen to me, just be careful. If you need anything, anything at all, give me a call. Chrissy, you're beginning to sound like my mom. Jessica was a young woman with curves. She had beautiful wavy hair, dark soulful eyes, porcelain skin, and a voluptuous physique. But, because she didn't fit the glamorized social ideal of beauty, Jessica typically found herself alone. And even while Chrissy's concerns were getting to her, she'd never admit to it, let alone pass up a date. It's been nine months since Jessica was able to speak, walk, reach out with her hands, smell a rose, or even see the world. Since she had any hope at all. And in those nine months, she grew accustomed to a new normal as a resident of the Paradise Meadows Residential Care Facility, the nursing home on the outskirts of town. There, she has the distinction of being the youngest resident and the only one to survive extensive mutilation. And, up until just a few hours ago, Jessica had one other thing which distinguished her from the rest of the Paradise Meadows women, a pregnancy. In the aftermath of delivering a healthy baby boy of six pounds and four ounces, the spitting image of his father, Jessica now lays in the still silence fully realizing that indeed there are things in this world worse than death. And, full of self-pity, she grapples with the harsh reality that her current state, her life, is likely to continue on decades into the future. Now, with a dozen victims spanning a period of less than ten years, 
Aaron Archer, alias James Cooper, Dennis Fitzpatrick, and Ryan McCall, amongst a host of others, remains free and beyond suspicion. And more to the point, he continues the process of baiting potential new victims, meeting lonely women through online dating services, talking with them and telling them what they want to hear, and ultimately luring them to their demise. Right now, right this very second, as you're peeking in the mirror for a quick makeup check, Aaron, under his current alias of James Cooper, is heading up the walkway with a dozen red, long-stem roses. The doorbell rings. Without a moment of hesitation, you rush to open the door and ask, Oh, for me? With delight, as the fragrant blossoms are delivered. Indeed they are, little sister, Aaron responds as a grin spreads across his face. End of story. That was Worse Than Death by Alan Welker. That definitely actually gave me nightmares the first time I read it. You can follow Alan on Twitter at RealAlanWelker. And you can also check out his website, AlanWelker.com. Thank you, Alan. Our last and final short story is called The Best Kept Secret by Val Carey. The Best Kept Secret The air was warm, dry, and still. Every hint of a breeze had been expended that day, and Marissa stood outside her mom's beige 1998 Honda Accord. Holding the back door open, she drank in the warm golden tones of the sky. Imelda Baltista slowly shuffled to the car. Everyone else was buckled in. Marisha waited patiently, appreciatively, lovingly. Imelda Baltista was 98 years old. Her glasses were thick like two small slices of bread resting on her wrinkled face. Her hair was purely white now, and she wore it in the same straight, shoulder-length bob she had worn all her life. Her hands were mangled like tree roots from years and years of hard work. She had spent her life cooking, cleaning, sewing, and from what Marissa heard, killing snakes with her own two mitts. She let Imelda in first. In the passenger side mirror, Marissa caught a glimpse of her father rolling his eyes and she felt a pang of resentment. Didn't he know who this was? Her mother adjusted the rearview mirror, lifting her eyebrows at how stylish she looked in her aviators. When Imelda was all buckled in, Marissa scooted next to her and asked, Are you good? Imelda nodded. Her mother started the car and they began their drive home. What did you think of the boats? Marissa asked her. It's okay, Imelda said, shrugging her shoulders. It was hard to connect with her sometimes. This woman had lived through the Japanese occupation of the Philippines. She had told Marissa the stories of running from soldiers with a group of fellow classmates. They hid in the tall grass, in the rice paddies. Then, she had said, I wait, and I listen, I hear. She made a jousting motion. Into the grass! They are dead! She had said with that stern look on her face. That had been a few years back. Marissa had not been to visit her since then. She would have if she could, but she never seemed to make enough money for a ticket. 
and now here she was, right next to her, and worlds apart. She had been a strong woman, Imelda never had any kids of her own. None that the family knew of, anyways. She had come over to the States with Marissa's grandmother and grandfather to watch Marissa's mom and her two sisters. She would tell them of three little girls she had in the Philippines, incidentally identical to Marissa's mother and her sisters. She never took a boyfriend or a husband. Her mother said that it was because of her dedication to the family. Marissa speculated otherwise. Despite the family's strong Christian orientation, Imelda was said to have been a witch doctor back in her village. She would make me drink a raw egg in a glass of milk when I was sick, her mother had told her. And any time there was an infection, she would tie ginger root to it. She swore by ginger, but she was right. It worked. The sun was relentless, but Imelda gazed off into the horizon, squinting her eyes, looking even more stern than usual. Marissa's mother and father chatted about how lovely it was at the docks, and whatever came across the radio that sparked their interest. Marissa felt a desperate emptiness. Her inspiration was right there beside her, but millions of miles away. You know, she said quietly, they used to call me Aunt, like the bug. I carried so much for my size, they would just see a pair of legs underneath a pile of gear walking through the motor pool. Imelda pressed her lips together, pushing back her cheeks. It may have been a smile. It was a lot, too. 260 rounds was the basic load. My plates were 35 pounds. Then I had my aid bag. She trailed off remembering the way she used to have to hike up the bag on her narrow shoulders. But I did it, and I didn't even complain because I thought about you and how tough you are. Imelda still said nothing. People didn't think I could do it, Imelda. They didn't think that I could march 12 miles with them. They didn't think that I would win that boxing smoker. But I remembered you, and how you never backed down from a fight. You taught me to be strong. Imelda lifted her eyebrows and put her hand on Marissa's knee. I know about you, she continued. I know who you really are, Mama G. She felt brave in this moment. She put her arm around the old woman. Her soul was hard, but her body was soft. Marissa pulled her close to her and let Imelda rest her head on her. The rest of the car ride, they said nothing. The breeze of their cracked open windows and the sound of talk radio lulled Marissa to sleep. She dreamed she was back in Iraq, and soldier after soldier came to her with their wounded, bloody stumps. She dreamed of grown men and women screaming and crying, skin charred. She saw herself treating them. She dressed their wounds and issued them ginger in case of an infection. She saw her face reflect a familiar sternness, with pursed lips and eyes squinting, just like the great Imelda. All the while, a giantess stood behind her. Her skin was brilliant and blue as a morning glory. She had a necklace made from the skulls of what must have been forty men. She held a saber high above her head, ready to strike. Her eyes darted back and forth, watching Marissa work. Her mouth was agape, tongue flicking back and forth. "'Are you not afraid?' asked one of the soldiers. "'This is our cover,' she explained. The soldier nodded in agreement, as if this were common information and he had just forgotten. 
It was the ringing from the car door opening that woke her up. The lights in the garage were dim, and the air was much cooler now. "'We're here!' said her mother. She and Marissa's father made their way inside. Imelda was still fast asleep in her arms. She was small and delicate now. This woman was once tasked with embalming her own father. She rolled her own cigars. She was the kind of woman that greeted you with three small jabs to your shoulder if she was happy to see you. All this was in this petite little package, like a well-kept secret. Come on, Imelda, let's go inside now, she said sliding her arm out from underneath her. Imelda slumped down and slid sideways to the door. Marissa gently reached over and shook her by the shoulder. Her head tilted forward and her glasses came down over her nose. Oh, Imelda, she whispered. She reached around her and pulled the old lady to her chest once more. She felt the sting of tears welling up in her eyes. Her heart rose to her throat as she sniffled her sobs. She had to be tough, even if Imelda was no longer able to see. Instead, she whispered, Har 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 gavande, har 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 mukande. Tears rolled down her cheeks as she squeezed the old lady tarder. Har 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 udore, har 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 apare. She began to rock. Har har haring, har har karing. Har har niramaya, har har akame. Praises be to the sustainer, the liberator. Praises be to the enlightener, to infinite. To the destroyer and creator, the nameless and the desireless. The garage lights went out. She whispered once more. Har har har. End of story. That was The Best Kept Secret by Val Carey. I'll leave a link to the story on her Facebook in the timestamp for you. Thank you, Val. That ends our short story section for the podcast. Thank you so much to all our writers and poets who submitted to me for open submissions. I still have about 30 or so left to go to look through. It is taking me a while. I do work full-time. I will get through them as quickly as possible. I am pre-recording this episode for you guys early so you can have one, but because of my timing and the fact that I don't get back from my trip until the actual Sunday I get back, when I normally would upload... I am going to be taking a one-week hiatus after this episode, but then I will be back on track on normal schedule on the 13th of October. And I also had a few authors submit to me, so I will be doing some book teasers for you all and featuring some authors for episodes, so look forward to that. Woo! That'll be exciting. I believe our first one up is actually a poet. So I'll be reading a ton of poetry to you. I have changed how I feature my episodes. You still need to email me and talk to me about that and give me enough material from your book to basically feature you for an episode. I have decided that you get the whole 30 minutes for featuring your book that is going to come out or is currently out and you're trying to promote as this is my way to help new authors get 
some free promotion. Well, enough of me rambling. I will talk to you all, or you'll listen to me again in a couple weeks. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please remember to subscribe. You subscribe on Castbox. You can now listen to me on Google Play Music, but I can't see it if you subscribe unless you subscribe on Castbox. <laughs> so if you subscribe on Castbox, yay! You can also follow me on Twitter at TaylorWoodland5 for any updates on the podcast. Our next theme episode will be dragons. I will announce that after I get back when we are going to do that episode. It'll be for October. Maybe I'll do it for Halloween. A dragony Halloween. That sounds kind of fun. Let's do that. We're going to do that. We're going to do dragons as our themed episode for the Halloween weekend. Woo! That's pretty much all I got. This has been Not Ready for Rhyme Time, and I have been your host, Taylor Woodland. Remember, mind the gap.